Okay, well, um, welcome everyone um, to the next uh, episode of our podcast, Controversy to Neurosurgery. Um, I'm Seth Oliveira, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rushna Ali, as well as our guest today, who is uh, a friend and a mentor, uh, Dr. Mary Ramon, who is an associate professor at um, University of Florida Department of Neurosurgery. And our topic today, we're going to discuss radiosurgery versus surgical resection for um, benign intracranial lesions, including schwannomas and meningiomas. And uh, I think we'll just get started. Uh, anything you want to say before, as we're getting going here? Oh, I appreciate you guys inviting me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. So thank you. And anything before we get started, Rashna, from your standpoint? Let's kick this off. I'm excited. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I think just to begin, uh, Dr. Ramon, um, just to kind of, for, for people who this might be sort of a new uh, subject, I think maybe just a little bit of background about kind of, I think most people understand what surgical resection is, but why you would consider radiosurgery instead of surgical resection, and, and maybe just a little bit kind of, if you don't mind, give us a little introduction to the topic. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, vestibular schwannomas, meningioma is very common, um, cerebellar, I'm, I'm assuming we're just going to be talking about cerebellar pontine angle kind of tumors and benign tumors in this area um, commonly present to neurosurgeon's office. And we're, you know, this is the big question is observation versus surgical resection versus radiosurgery, which is, those are the kind of the mainstays of treatment. And I will say in general, I favor treatment uh, for anyone who is young and the chance, uh, you know, and having a chance of that tumor grow during their lifetime. And, you know, I live in Florida, we have an aging population here. And honestly, you know, <laughs> um, you know, we talk about how 70 is the new 50, like it really, you know, these people are just living much, much longer with great qualities of life. And, and so, um, you know, if, we're, if I really think there's any chance that during their lifetime, that lesion could potentially grow or be symptomatic or grow enough to then fall out of the size range of being able to be treated with radiosurgery, I'm going to treat. So in general, I'm encouraging people to have treatment up front, unless I really think that they have a lot of comorbidities or the lesion is so tiny that we could just observe. Right. And I guess that, that's a good point that the alternative to what we're going to talk about today would be observation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that for lesions that are three centimeters or larger, again, in that population that you would treat, you know, those patients should definitely get treated with surgery. The workhorse for me and for, I think, the mo most neurosurgeons is the retrosigmoid approach for that. We typically do it in combination with ENT um, so they can drill at the IAC. Uh, but for lesions that are three centimeters or less in size that don't have features that are concerning, and I'll discuss those in a moment, um, I think treating those with radiosurgery um, is the right way to go. It's it's outpatient, it's non-invasive, the risk profile is low, and the, the overall control rates when you compare radiosurgery to open surgery for these lesions is essentially equivalent. They both have really excellent long-term outcome control rates and 10 years greater than 90%. And so I find it hard to justify putting somebody under general anesthesia and making an incision doing a posterior foster craniotomy and something that can be treated with a single you know, outpatient dose of radiation. Things that would prevent me from doing radiosurgery though, because I'm concerned about something else is um, brainstem edema or brainstem compression. It, it, both of those are really rare if you truly have a lesion that's three centimeters or less in size and has typical features of vestibular schwannoma or meningioma. Um, rapid growth or kind of rapid onset of other cranial neuropathies are not pretty, not typical, you know, like facial numbness or diplopia or something in that setting would make me concerned about just treating upfront radiosurgery because you might be dealing with something other than just a typical vestibular schwannoma. 
Um, so, you know, or long track findings on the patient's exam. Uh, but if they're otherwise, you know, kind of a typical presentation with just like hearing loss and a lesion that's three centimeters or less, I think radio surgery is reasonable. And once it gets three centimeters or greater or has any other atypical findings on imaging, then I would pursue surgery. Yeah, those are all really good points. And, you know, I guess you, you kind of alluded to this, but where, where's sort of that gray area where there's a patient that you might kind of think... Yeah. You're, you might kind of ask someone else their opinion that, 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 that you know, different people might treat differently. Yeah, so I think that um, two and a half to three centimeter um, size is really that gray zone. And, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of times in um, in that size range, it is a discussion between me and my partners and my ENT partner in terms of what to do. And I, I can't can't say that I have always respected the three centimeter cutoff. There are definitely patients who have lesions were slightly smaller than that. I've ended up taking to surgery because mm -hmm. I couldn't convince them actually to have radio surgery. Like, you know, and, um, but most of the time, you know, when they come to clinic, if they have a three centimeter or less, I'll try to push them for radio surgery. But, you know, some patients are really dead set against that. And then yeah. in that case, I respect, um, respect their opinion. Um, and then, because I think both of them essentially have equivalent outcomes. Although I do think surgery, although not high risk, is still higher risk than radio surgery. Yeah, you know, while you're discussing this, uh, just happened. I was taking care of a patient like this today, and I, I thought it'd be a good one to bring up. Is so, so kind of one specific um, group of patients that I know is challenging is patients with neurofibromatosis. Yeah. You know, we're kind of talking about preserving hearing, and oftentimes multiple lesions. You know, potentially multiple lesions in the posterior fossa. Um, and obviously that's, that's a tricky patient population where, you know, multiple treatments of radiation or, or multiple surgeries are all not very desirable and, and oftentimes in quite young patients. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would be curious to find out what you did. I will say that, um, in general with these patients with the genetic, uh, you know, hereditary, hereditary, um, tumor disorders in general, less is more, you know, do less preserve function for as long as possible. Cause otherwise we'll just never stop operating or irradiating these people. And, um, you know, I do kind of use the size, um, as a threshold. So I, there are two things that would push me for some kind of intervention. Um, one be, you know, growth or, or symptom, you know, a lesion becoming symptomatic would push me to an intervention. The other one is that if a lesion, even though it's not, um, symptomatic or, you know, other than hearing loss, uh, but is reaching that three centimeter threshold, I'd rather just treat them with radio surgery, see how they respond, um, you know, and they may end up needing a crany in the future, but if I could buy some time with treating them with radio surgery, if they're getting close to that three centimeter mark, I, I would probably do that with the understanding that we're trying to preserve um, hearing, uh, you know, but at the same time, we have to just counsel them that regardless of what they do, whether it's observation or radio surgery or surgery, they're going to lose their hearing at some point. And so they that will have to be an expectation and, and plans for learning sign language and things like that. Yeah, and I, I think you're specifically referring to, you know, NF patients that, you know, that, that, but I guess, you know, you can have those same conversations then obviously with people who, you know, have a unilateral schwannoma or, you know, even meningioma in that area. And, you know, that, that gets into a little bit more of the controversial topics of a patient, you know, we're trying to preserve hearing for someone um, and, and depending on who you talk to, you get a little bit of a different answer 
to that question, whether surgery or radiosurgery is better. Um, I guess if the patient asks you that, you know, which should I have? So, that, you know, I don't care what you, what you do. I just want to hear as long as possible, or, you know, I, I don't want to lose my hearing. And you know, what's your response to that question from a patient? I, yeah, I honestly think that um, all three, um, I personally believe that all three essentially have equivalent outcomes. Like if you observe it and it grows, you're going to lose your hearing. If you have radio surgery, you're going to lose your hearing in a delayed fashion, likely, unless it's super tiny. Uh, and if it's surgery, you will probably end up losing your hearing again, if, unless it's super tiny. Uh, and so, and if it is super tiny, you know, might as well just treat with radio surgery. I don't think that there's any huge advantage to surgically resecting those in terms of the hearing preservation issue. Cause same thing with radio surgery, it's very, you know, confocal and the dose to the cochlea, if you're treating a very small lesion is, is not very high. Uh, and so I think that there is with a vestibular schwannoma, there is a pretty reasonable chance of hearing loss, regardless of which of those things you use. And it may still be serviceable hearing, but it will probably be some amount of hearing loss. And in my practice, at least the vast majority of people don't have those little tiny vestibular schwannomas that are just in the canal. Like, you know, most of them are bigger than that. And so I think that they're to have useful hearing that ear is usually not a reasonable expectation. And I, I guess that's an important thing to clarify that the patient that comes in with a tiny meningioma that has normal hearing um, I, I know that some people, and that gets into the controversial aspects of this, might argue that somehow you can preserve your hearing with a, with a, a surgical intervention. Um, and I don't know that there's a lot of data to support that, but, you know, depending on who you talk to, you'll get, and yeah. how, how much people believe in their own surgical skills sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> might get no, question. I mean, it might be true, you know, because you're obviously not irradiating the cochlea. Um, I think that the cochlear dose, and if you're treating a small petroclival meningioma is probably relatively low and, you know, you're, it, you know, it's a trade-off because, um, you know, although surgery if for a very small tumor is likely low risk, it's still general anesthesia, still posterior fossa crani. And all of us have had those patients who you've had, you know, like the easiest, you're high-fiving each other at the end of surgery. And then something bad happens. You're like, oh no, why did I do that? And so, you know, I think that it's still a possibility. And I think the likelihood of those types of things happening after radio surgery is very low. Um, still nothing is zero, you know? And so, and, and sometimes these situations, I do think that having your ENT partner involved in part of this counseling is really helpful in terms of what can you do to augment hearing, if not preserve it, um, you know, with the special hearing aids and the other things. And so I think that that can aid in somebody who's kind of hesitant one way or the other. Um, yeah, I think that's know, a really good point because we're, we're obviously not the hearing experts. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and the other thing is, um, you know, the main question is like, what would you want for yourself? Like, do you, I mean, I don't want a posterior fossil cranium. <laughs> You know, and so like if I could not have one, I would much preserve, prefer that. Um, so. Yeah, and you know, and I think to get back to your point that anytime you do posterior fossa surgery, even for you know for cranial you know, you know neuropathic pain, you know for trigeminal neuralgia or one of the other kind of associated syndromes, when you retract on the seventh and eighth nerves, there's a potential for hearing loss in the you know in surgeries when there's not a tumor there. So, um, so I think if the the goal is to preserve hearing, that you know. Yeah, that, that should be a very kind of you know, detailed conversation. You know, obviously, it's not an emergency most of the time. So there's, you know, kind of time to talk about all these different yeah. issues. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I never thought about that way. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I guess you know, maybe the million dollar question is, you know, is, you know, why do you think there's controversy in this area? <laughs> Oh my God. So, you know, I definitely have, so the vast majority of these patients actually come through ENT, right? Like some, somebody they have hearing loss, some ENT and 
in practice somewhere. And so they come to you. And so they have been kind of primed by ENT to have surgery. And, um, you know, ENT folks in general, you know, they're not involved in radio surgery. So that's not going to be in general, the first thing that they recommend. Um, and at least in my experience. And so I will say there, you know, I've definitely had patients who I'm counseling about radio surgery and they're like, well, why have I never heard of this? Or, you know, I have heard of this and I don't want it because I'm going to get cancer in the tumor. If you have to have do surgery in the future, it's going to be much more difficult. Like there are multiple myths that fly around and there's good literature showing that none of those myths really pan out in any fashion. Uh, and so, um, you know, when you're, uh, you know, counseling these patients and they're like, well, why is what you're saying so different than what somebody else is saying? Uh, I think that there's a couple of things, you know, one, um, it's very hard to change practice. Like people like to do what they're comfortable with. And, you know, um, this collaboration between neurosurgery and ENT to take out these tumors in this location to these beautiful surgeries, like everyone wants to do that. And neuroautology specifically, I mean, in ENT, like that, that's what they train to do. And that's what they want to do. And they don't have the option to treat with radiosurgery. That's left to the neurosurgeon and the radiation oncologist. So they're kind of left out of that treatment paradigm. Yeah, I think um, that's a really good point of where the patients come from, that, that yeah. a lot of that sort of momentum has built before you ever meet the patient and you're sort of <laughs> the one supposed kind of slamming on the brakes sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things, you know, for example, I'm just going to make a corollary with aneurysm clipping and, and, and coiling is that the person who's clipping and coiling in general is the same person, right? Like they're dual trained neurosurgeons. And so they, they're going to treat the patient regardless of like, they're not losing that patient population. But as soon as you bring in a treatment paradigm that shifts things. And so radio surgery was very much that, right? Like um, uh, there was a paradigm shift. And now the person who's treating that is different. The team is different than the team that was treating those that patient population previously. There's gonna be resistance to that. So I think part of it is that. Um, and, you know, the other issue is that sometimes people are like, oh, I have a tumor, just take it out. You know, like just get it out. Like I, I you definitely see these patients like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. And radiation sounds toxic and horrible. Like just get it out. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. And, um, you know, with little understanding of the nuance and um, of this discussion and the delicacy of this particular location and um, things like that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. This you know, highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary team approach for these patients where you are actually, regardless of where the patients are being referred to, you're kind of bringing them, bringing all the experts um, in the same room to, to talk about each individual case and kind of have a more patient uh, specific and uh, precision medicine type of approach. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. I was going to say that, you know, I mean, so the other kind of part of the topic is for meningiomas, which, you know, in, it could be posterior fossa or super, super, super tentorial. And, and you, you don't obviously have that same sort of resistance. You know, this kind of problem is certainly more kind of highlighted by the point you just said that it's kind of involves multiple disciplines. And, you know, I, I think, and oftentimes they come in, you know, symptomatic from some degree of hearing loss or vertigo or something like that. So those patients just want, want it fixed where I feel like, majority of patients you consider SRS for, for meningiomas in the posterior fossa or, or super tutorial, you know, those patients are oftentimes asymptomatic and those patients are like, great. Yeah. Something I can have an outpatient procedure and, <laughs> and, and not have to think about this ever again. Like those patients, it's like, you know, you can push them over the feather where the, you know, the, 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 the vestibular schwannomas are oftentimes not that way. So that's really kind of a good point. And, yeah, I think that's true. And also, you know, um, petroclival meningiomas have their own challenge and you know that you're not going to be able to resect the dura, you know, with the vestibular schwannoma, there's a good chance that you're going to, you know, get a ghost total resection. With a meningioma at, at the skull base like that, you know, at best you're getting a Simpson grade two. 
And so, um, but it's, you know, because of that, I think that there's probably, you know, less glamour involved in taking out the petroclival meningioma and more. And that, that also brings up a point that, yeah, you, you know, certainly that situation where there's residual, you're, you're going to radiate afterwards anyways. And that, that can be the case even sometimes after resection, you know, you get in there, you think you can take the whole thing out for a, for a vestibular schwannoma when you can't, and then you're back to square one, back to radiating when you could have irradiated in the first place, potentially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting, you know, kind of, uh, you know, thing that I think that all of us, certainly people, people who do radio surgery, you kind of run into these situations where you kind of, you know, and, and sometimes it's obviously after the fact, a little more obvious what the decision was than, than, than you know, it, it, um, it's it's funny that you say that. I, I will say that one thing is that, um, and actually Michael Link gave a great talk about this that I listened to a few years ago about quality of life, like kind of patient reported mm -hmm. outcomes uh, for vestibular schwannoma. And, and, you know, the very opening slide that he had was essentially that, you know, you know, he had a patient who he observed, he had a patient who treated with radio surgery and a patient who he resected. And essentially all three of them were miserable in some way. <laughs> and, you know, that if you kind of follow these patients for their outcomes, like, you know, everyone, you know, the, the, the dizziness or the, you know, um, hearing loss or whatever, you know, can bother these patients. And in some ways, you know, no matter what you end up doing, <laughs> they're going to have some symptoms that are bothersome. Um, and so he, he gave a good talk about that. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, I, I think we'd all say that of those things, the most likely one to make you miserable, I think, would be SRS. Um, yeah. But, but you know, you give a patient has really bad vertigo, uh, that kind of, or, or you know, kind of, you know, problems with their hearing. You know, those can be a big deal to the individual patient. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think in terms of kind of big complications from radio surgery, you can think about someone getting some sort of radiation necrosis or something like that. That, that you know, it's possible you can get swelling in the tumors and. And th those risks aren't very high because it's a relatively low dose of radiation compared to what we use for malignant tumors. But uh, um, you know, in, in the wrong patient, and that, that gets, I guess we didn't really talk about the beginning, but that that's why there's those cutoffs and why if there's brain stem compression, you worry more because if you know, yeah. the bigger tumors, the bigger thing you treat, obviously that those risks go up. And and so that's what you get in those gray areas, then then you kind of those conversations, you know, are a little more salient, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that that is actually a really good point. I will say that some of my um, nonchalance about um, radio surgery comes from the fact that it's a high volume, you know, it's a high volume center. It's a place where we, uh, my partners, I can't take any credit for this, like do radio surgery really well, and so we can be confident that the risk is really low. But I think depending on where you practice, the risk of radio surgery actually may be higher, um, because if you have a team that um, you know doesn't necessarily target as well, or you know the whatever stereotaxis you use isn't as accurate. And so then you might see higher complication rates or like, you know, the, the facial twitching after radio surgery or brainstem edema after radio surgery. And those can be devastating complications and hard to deal with. So, so for sure, I think that's true. Like some of my viewpoint on radio surgery is colored um, based on where I practice. Yeah, one other, which isn't very common unless you're starting to get big tumors, but can really make people miserable is if you have swelling enough that it touches the trigeminal nerve, and then you can get facial pain, which can be really difficult to treat. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I can say from coming more of a community practice where we get people referred that aren't always as well thought out and, you know, <laughs> then if you don't, you know, kind of be the one to, to step in, you can, you know, get, get yourself in situations where, where things, you know, might not turn out as well. So there's definitely that selectivity that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. You mean for radio surgery or for surgery? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, both, either or, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I think sometimes that, you know, in, in community practices, there's a little bit more. You know, people feel obligated to to do what the patient's been referred for, and and you right, know, that's right. 
if you if you sort of aren't don't sort of stick to those principles, that's when you can get yourself yeah. in. So yeah. uh, I, I think you know in, in everyday practice, I think these are pretty relevant points for a lot of you know practicing neurosurgeons. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. So taking it one step uh, further, um, what is your approach to a patient who has a tumor that's still less than uh, the the three centimeter cutoff, has had uh, radiation? but uh, continues to be symptomatic. So either the tumor didn't shrink much or didn't shrink enough to cause, uh, cause resolution of symptoms yeah. or is showing slow growth, but it's still kind of right at that cutoff. So I'll give one. Um, so it, within our practice, less than 1% of patients have had an intervention after radiosurgery for a benign tumor in the CP angle. So that's one thing. But I will say in my practice, I've had one patient that I ended up operating on who had radiosurgery initially, and it was kind of like a CP angle meningioma. She had radiosurgery in an outside institution and then presented with a severe um, uh facial spasms that were mm. debilitating. Mm. And because of that, I ended up taking her to surgically resect the tumor and she actually improved significantly. Mm. Uh, and so her spasms are like, there's, they still happen every once in a while, but not on a daily basis before they were like all day all constantly. Like she couldn't like run her shop. She couldn't do anything because her face was in spasm all the time. Mm. So that's, that's the only one I can remember out of my practice if I'd taken surgically um, for symptomatic lesion that was, and actually her tumor hadn't really grown after radio surgery, just hadn't really shrunk. Mm -hmm. um, and because of her debilitating, um, spasm, I took her, um, but otherwise, um, you know, I don't have anyone that I really recall that myself that I have taken for the, for that particular scenario. Um, although, you know, my senior partner, Fried, Dr. Friedman probably has seen it and potentially done it, but again, it's a small, it's a very small percentage of patients of this less than 1%, but it's not zero. There are people who get treated with radio surgery who then end up needing surgery. Yeah, and I, I do remember him talking about that because he gives a good talk on this and 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 saying you know, one of the sort of myths out there is that it's, you know, surgery is difficult after you know radio surgery resection is difficult after radio surgery and you know his opinion is that's not the case that if anything things are de devascularized and you know there can be yeah. some scarring but so it depends on how you define it I think he's right I think that from an actual tumor standpoint it's not hard but the facial nerve mm -hmm. could potentially be affected by radio surgery and trying to define a plane. If you have a reasonable size tumor and trying to define a plane between the nerve and the tumor, it, again, I personally have not done this, but I could, I, I would not be surprised if that is more challenging in someone who's been treated with radio surgery. I could say I've done, I think I've done one or maybe two microvascular yeah. compressions after someone's had SRS for, for trigeminal neuralgia and the arachnoid, you know, which is kind of a pristine situation and, and the arachnoid layers are thicker. And so a little, you know, it's a, you know, the trigeminal nerve is pretty easy to see and to, to, to distinguish, but dissecting those layers off is not so e not as easy as it normally would be. So I, I could believe that too. So, um, but yeah, so I, I think that really kind of covers the, you know, so those kind of things you can talk about a long time, but I, I think we've kind of covered the the salient, the, kind of, the, the high points of the, of the kind of topic. Sure we're other... getting emails from people who think that we're complete morons for the things that we're saying. <laughs> we, 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 can't, we can't go into too deep. It's always, the, that's always the challenge of the controversies podcast is not getting too controversial. Anything you can think of that we haven't touched on either of you or Russian of you, any other questions you can think of? Uh, I was just curious on what your thoughts are on uh, redo uh, radiosurgery, especially for lesions that um, weren't treated at a high volume center where you think 
the the radios or yeah. the uh, improvement? That's a great question. So redo radio surgery for a benign lesion. I can't say that I have any experience with because in general, for benign lesions growing after radio surgery, our, our worry is that it's not benign, that we're, we have the wrong diagnosis. So in general, we're going to take those patients for surgery to just mostly to get a diagnosis. Redo radio surgery for other things like METs, um, you know, it's been, it's published. It is definitely feasible, especially in patients who are otherwise not good candidates or sm they're small lesions, even though they're growing, they're still small and they're deep and you otherwise wouldn't do it. We have controversy within our own department of when to do repeat radio surgery versus doing lit for those lesions. Wow. Um, but um, we could do another controversy uh, <laughs> podcast on that. But um, you know, I would say that for benign lesions in general, if they're growing after radio surgery, even if it was at a non-high volume place, I would probably take that person for a resection because I'm we're going to question the diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That and, and, and I guess one thing that you might kind of clarify about that is that um, you know clearly there, there's a there's a period where those tumors can grow slightly yeah. Yeah. you know from the treatment but you know you're kind of after you know six months or so if they're still growing then you're starting to get nervous yeah, yeah. um well i think that's really great um unless miriam do you have any other thoughts or no. <laughs> words of wisdom <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i think you know I think a basic tenet for all of us, and I think all of us really do this, is just to ask like what you would want done for yourself or your own family member. And it's actually, those are the exact words I use when I counsel patients. Cause you know, when you deal with brain tumors, there's a lot of options. And oftentimes there's not good data to support one option over the other. And so like, why, why are we really pushing for one thing? And I think helping patients navigate that, you know, and not just say, okay, well, here are the options you choose, you know, really helping them navigate that and tell them, well, this is what I would advise if it were my family member. I think if you stick to that, you're going to, you know, you'll do the right thing by the patient. Yeah, I think that's a really good piece of advice. And I, I've actually used that before with my colleagues who are struggling with a, with a, you know, kind of difficult case as well. And I, the other way I say is, you know, if your family member came and told you that someone told them this was the plan, would you be mad? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And, and every once in a while I say, that's a great point. I would be mad when <laughs> they do the opposite. <laughs> that's <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I guess we can call like we, we can call that the end of the podcast. Unless <laughs> anything else, but and, and again, uh, thanks to everyone who's uh, you know listening to this, and um, you can kind of find out more at cns.org. We have lots of you know offerings, you know, in the different kind of parts of the educational uh, content that you can look up cases related to this if you're interested. And, um, and with that, so I'll, I'll say thank you again, I'm Seth Oliveira and Rush Ali, my co-host, and then uh, Dr. Mary Merman. Uh, take care.